BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. I don't know where to begin. There's too many things that I can't remember I disappear like a trend In the hum of the five in the early morning And now I'm taking my time Up through Koalinga, through the valley This highway takes me in my mind It takes me back to the place that made me was I in your way when the camera turned to face you? No room in frame for two. You cannot outrun a ghost speeding southbound lanes with abandon. It catches you on the coast. Or on the cliffs of the Palisades you killed the engine And when it hovers above Reeling bodies failing to discover The thing we once knew was love They were raising their voices to convince one another Was I in your way? When the camera turned to face you no room in frame for two And how can I stay in the sun When the rain flows all through my veins Well, it's true And I guess it's not a failure we could help And we'll both go on to get lonely with someone else. With someone else. Was I in your way when the cameras turned to face you? No room in frame to. How can I stay in the sun when the rain flows all through my veins? Well, it's true.
And I guess it's not a failure that we could help. And we'll both get on to get lonely with someone else. All right, welcome to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan. That was No Room in Frame by Def Cab for Cutie. That came off the eighth album, Kintsugi which is a type of Japanese art involving fixing broken pottery. It has a philosophy of treating breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise. So I think oh, while the writing was going on for that album and like from some of the, the live versions I've seen of him doing it, I believe this it was written uh, while he was going through his divorce or after it. And so I found it shortly after my own and so this this was a special album. I think I found it through Pandora. I heard Black Sun. It's got uh, Good Help is So Hard to Find. And uh, No Room in Frame was kind of hidden. Didn't find that one for a while on the album. It, it was one that just kind of got skipped over. But after I found out what I believe that the album is about, I kind of tell that a lot of the writing was based around that. And so I've concluded that the whole album is dealing with that. And I think with each of the songs, I can kind of see that it is and so it's it's an interesting album i like it when artists do this is focused on a particular subject especially if it's personal and they're willing to kind of share in like in some of the youtube videos you can look up on i think it was k-rock where he does this acoustically it's just him and his pianist gala i mean it's he's you know getting the tears out of his eyes after uh after it's over and so man we're excited about tonight's episode of porch talk i'll be introducing the guests here in just a little bit hang out all right. Well, hey, welcome to Porch Talk. Hey, this is Alan, and I'm here with Sean Suttle. Very excited about having him on tonight. All right, so I met him while I was living down in Mobile through a mutual friend, Sid, and we were all hanging out in Foley, and we wound up at his place, and, man, we were rocking out. And so, Sean, man, hey, it's good to have you on, brother. What's going on? Oh, not much, man. Hey, uh, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. No problem, brother. All right, so just like out the gate, just when I was getting to know you, it's it's a rarity. Like you play music, talented with that. You do drums and bass, and like, what? Where all are you at with that right now? With music, uh, you know, I'm still playing, still playing out live every now and again. I play with Sid, playing the cajon a lot, uh, playing bass, trying to write music. But writing music is so it's the most difficult. It seems like sharing, you know. Yeah, it really can be, and I know that, um, man, I have been playing guitar with Sid for years off and on, and me and him kind of have the same, the same kind of struggles, I guess, with it, is it's, it's, it's a lot easier to write the music piece than it is the words sometimes, and sometimes it's vice versa. <laughs> it, it really can be. Uh, and it can be I, tricky. I, I, and then, then there's those moments where it's just fluid. <laughs> Yeah, there's for me right when you start writing lyrics, you're really starting to talk like about yourself. Uh, at least when I write lyrics, right? You know, and I, that's when it starts getting a little too personal. And then I question whether I would ever even sing that song in front of anybody. And then I it goes in the trash. <laughs> yeah, dude, I can <laughs> definitely relate with that. Just just on top of like the commonalities is you share a a hobby we both spend a lot of time with you're a craftsman and so not with woodworking and so you've you've dabbled in knives and bows is that right yeah i i really uh i got bit by the knife bug where <laughs> you, you 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 slap uh, uh some piece of steel you put an edge on it and you 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 grab 
two pieces of wood and you glue it on there and then after that you're like okay i'm gonna make knives forever now just, <laughs> everything you everything you can find or scrounge up you know you just get drawn into like a little world of knife making because i was always if I, I was the kid with the knife in their pocket whenever we were out in the woods that's yeah. what i grew up doing kind of yeah right ranging all right and so and this has turned out to be a great introduction we'll dig into each of these subjects and so on top of that here on Porch Salt, man, we're big on business, especially small business. I, I love an entrepreneur. It's something that I'm very interested in. And so I would like to, for you to kind of share a little bit about how the yard service that you provide started uh, with your father and how you kind of got into uh, acquiring it over the past two years. You know, I live in Foley, Alabama. It, this is like a retirement area, it's very close to Florida. This whole The whole Gulf Coast is really where I live very kind of kind of gold towards getting older folks to move down here to retire here spend their money here buy a house right and so my dad came from georgia when he was kind of looking for to move past that job just having a job he he, he saw what was in the area and, and it was a lot of people down here that needed work done that were retired and they had the money they just didn't want to do it so he kind of filled that gap a little bit and and took advantage of of a need in the area so he, and so, he just like, kind of saw that. When he came from Georgia, like, was he just kind of on vacation, or was he moving? Why, why did he come to Foley? Well, my dad came to Foley. It's, it's actually a long story, but he was a, <laughs> he was a boat captain. And oh, wow. uh, he worked with one of his mates that he worked with was, was my uncle. They got to know each other, and uh, his uncle, my uncle kind of invited him down to kind of meet the family and hang out and because my dad was a foster kid, he didn't have any family. Okay, it was kind of like a chance to for him to there's a chance come to have and meet everybody and have some have some family time off the boat. Right. And he and he met my mom. You know, it took it took years of kind of getting to know her, but eventually they got married. So he came to live in Foley, but he's from Savannah originally. He just he had been a boat captain for a long time and sailed all around the world. And when it was time to settle down, he he moved down here. All right. He was working at, at, a, at a factory, and when he kind of figured out that the factory life wasn't for him, he had to pick something. So that's where the lawn service in my family kind of came from. He just filled that, that need in the area. That's great, man. Like, I, I love the stories, like, just dissatisfied with what you're doing with your life and seeing that there's a need in the community and meeting that need. And it becomes lucrative, and it becomes a way of living. That's always great. And so what happened over the past couple of years that kind of helped you to kind of take over well my dad he's he's 67 and so two years ago he had an injury he had about 65 different people contracts that he was currently handling himself i was working at a pizza place and just doing my own thing living my own life but he was he had been doing that consistently for about 35 years you know it's a it's a very stressful and physically demanding job so he's been he's been holding it up for a long time by himself and he didn't even really have employees he had my brother and me but that was about it so it, after a while he had some kind of a something happened with his arm where he actually had we thought he had needed rotator cuff surgery we thought it was like a, a very debilitating injury right and, and and when it came time for him to go to work he couldn't do it he couldn't couldn't lift a weed eater he couldn't drive the lawnmower he couldn't drive the truck he needed to stay home right uh, which is totally out of character for my dad to ever not go to work. Yeah, he's a hard uh, worker. You know. It's part of his character. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, he's seven days a week, pretty much. He's he's doing his own work. 
it became his life. And so all of a sudden, five minutes, he's like, you know, hurt and he can't do his career. He can't do his job. And he had to be pretty much tell these people, uh, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm gone. Don't don't look for me to come back next week and cut your grass and trim your plants and put pine straw out and do all the, the little things I do all season long that you depend on me for, mm-hmm. you know, because he's he's a pretty good deal in the area. So right. it kind of it kind of puts people that are on a fixed income in a place where they really don't have the money to go out and get this bigger conglomerate of a company. You know what I mean? It, it, they right. really wanted my dad, the small business to stay around. And so they were freaking out. Absolutely. And, and so like, what was and, going through your, what was going through your mind at this time? Because this was this before or after, you were recently married. So was this before or after you were married? This, this was before I was married. What, what was really strange about it is that the reason his arm was hurt so bad is because he attempted to do all this work that, I had agreed to help him do, but I had my appendix go bad. Oh, <laughs> and uh, I ended up going into the hospital for four days. And uh, so he was stuck trying to do way too much work for, for one person to do in a short amount of time. And it, it basically injured his arm. So it really, I felt really bad. Like it was my fault. I mean, I didn't want my appendix to go bad, but, but it did. Right. And it was my fault. <laughs> so, well, and then yeah. you could help. It's just kind of the way it happened. Right. But it still felt to me like, well, he's literally losing his business, having to tell all these customers that, you know, he's done. He's oh, he can't work anymore. And uh, it felt like it was, it was as close to heartbroken maybe as my dad would ever be, you know, because he's a pretty hard man. And uh, losing losing the business and having to see other people out there cutting his yards and doing his work and making his money, that would have killed him. Well, Nothing really was going through my mind. Just that, oh, my God, I've got this huge hospital bill. But, right. uh, it wasn't it wasn't long after I got out of the hospital that my dad gave, kind of gave me the option. He was like, you know, we can let all this go or you could take over the family business. And two years later, I'm I can't believe I ever questioned doing it. Wow. So let's let's what's the name of the business? Well, it's it's Sean Subtle Lawn Service. I'm I'm a DBA. Okay. Uh, I'm doing business as myself for the sheer fact of it really makes things easier. I can do, I don't have to be tied down to, I do pressure washing and trees and I'll, I can be licensed and, and insured for different things. I, it's, it makes it a little easier on me to be Sean Subtle Lawn Service rather than some corporation or okay. some, All right. some, some other name that, it, at least I'm, I'm trying to brand my name as the business, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. I want people to look at a yard and go, who did that? Sean Subtle, not Green Leaves lawn service or the or you know shade tree lawn service or right. something i want it to be sean subtle right i mean you, you, i don't know you, i don't know you much put, about you put your, you put your money where your mouth is literally right yeah I, yeah and, and i want my name to be spread and because mm-hmm. totally honest i this year had more work than i could possibly get done thrown at me okay and i pay for zero advertising wow no i don't know what so your work do. is literally speaking for itself I'm a little OCD. <laughs> I, I think I get that from my mom. She's a little OCD. And imagine, you know, your your dad runs a business for 30 years, yeah. 40 years, and you've got to step into his shoes. You can't do a worse job than him. Right. You know, you can't, you can't come in there because it wasn't long after I took over this business, took over the vast majority of his contracts, that the arm healed up. Right. And he's ready to go back to work. Mm-hmm. And so he goes out and starts building his business back up. And so now me and my dad 
kind of work in conjecture and kind of help each other. And, you know, if one needs help doing something, we'll go over and run two lawnmowers and, you know, so it kind of worked. It couldn't have worked out better because it kind of pushed me out of a nest of being like, I have to work at a job. I have to work for somebody who's, you know, pay me a certain amount every week. It's right. like, it forced me to get into that mindset of you make your money, Sean, you go out there and make the decisions and the calls. And Oh, that's, that's, that's great, man. That's great. Let, let's, let's chase that for just a second. So just for those out there listening. And so everybody's story is going to be a little bit different, but for those who are aspiring, maybe not just for lawn care, but just for entrepreneurship in and, in and of itself, just 28 years old, you know, just kind of step into the game. What are some of the what are some of the tips or advice that you would give for uh, someone that is trying to be tenacious about getting after being an entrepreneur? Well, as soon as you you, you own your own business, the vast majority of people I think 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 that that means well you don't have to go to work if you don't feel like it, or it means it means you can take all that money out and go buy that motorcycle with it. You can do that. Nobody's going to get mad at you. Right. But what it really means is you have to you're at work seven days a week. Because even if you're only working six days, on that seventh day, you're looking at the ledger, you're looking at the uh, schedule, you're looking at the calendar, you're looking at your supplies of things that you need to get. You're never separated from your business. You're always tied to it, like, permanently. Yeah. That's And if you're not, then you're really – you got no hope. Unless you're, unless you're really, like, 100% focused, you can't halfway do this. Okay. And so, like, with that – I like the fact that you have your name on the company, but are there things in your life that you saw got in the way that you had to cut out that you were passionate about to put more focus on this? It's more like I I had to change the degree to which I was allowing myself to get into different things. Like, you know, you, you really have to make it make a call sometimes. Can you take that trip? And yeah, you know, mm-hmm. can you go out that weekend? Should you drink that night? Okay. There's little things along the way you decide, you go, I can't do that because okay. it's bad for the business, you know? Right. Great. Man, that is awesome. And so just like one last little piece about that. And so people in the Baldwin County, Alabama, Foley, Gulf Shores, Loxley, am I kind of Fruitdale? Am I in the area? Oh, yeah. You're, you, hit, you hit all the areas. And in one area, I don't even know where it is. So that's perfect. <laughs> Great. So... What what is a what is a way that they can contact Sean Subtle about getting in touch with you about lawn service? They can well, to be honest, mostly it's word of mouth, uh, <laughs> and uh, but I will throw the phone number out there for anybody that has somebody in the area, grandma or somebody that needs a lawn care mm-hmm. service, take take care of their uh, property. Uh, call me at two five one nine seven nine three six seven five. You know, just call me, free quote. We'll figure it out. Great. Well, all right, man. So I wanted to move off into uh, the, the craftsmanship, man, because I was blown away by, by some of the work that you had done. And, I mean, just, just out of my own passion and out of, like, just my, out of my own heart, man, like when I see woodwork or metalworking, I am immediately attracted to it. And, man, I got to say, I was yeah. impressed with some of your stuff. So how did how did all that start for you? How did you become involved with and I know you shared earlier, you know, as a kid, you were the guy with the knife in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. But, like... I, I was, that's what we did growing up. It was, uh, we had, you know, we were chopping trees down, and we were hacking things and making making forts and all kinds of things like that. So having a sharp knife was, like, a very important thing, and being able to put an edge on an axe 
early on was something we had to learn how to do. Couldn't take a chainsaw. Folks didn't want us to have chainsaws, but we could have right. an axe. Yeah. Man, I'll tell you, like, mine, it was, um, I just, nerdy, man. Nerdy all the way up. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Oh, same. And, man, like, just the movies, I think when I saw The Fellowship of the Ring, I, I don't remember exactly when it came out. I was I was preteen, man. I had to be 11, 12, or 13. And, like, I was just blown away. You know, and that wasn't the first time I was introduced to it. I mean, Robin Hood and Men in Tights, if you want to go to a comedy <laughs> level. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, there, there's other movies that, that really capture this archery, and I was, and my school didn't offer it. I come from a very small town, and we, we just offer the big three. You know, you can play baseball, football, basketball. Yeah, those it's, are your options, yeah. And so I wish I was at a place where I could have done archery, but at the same time, it was good to be in the country, so to speak, because my neighbor, and I couldn't tell you how it began, but... One day he just showed up at my house, and I don't know if my, and I was living with my grandfather and my, well, my grandparents at the time. He just showed up at the house, Jerry, same last name as mine, and we're very far off relative. But anyway, he just asked, he's like, Alan, would you be interested in woodworking and learning how to make a self-bow? And, you know, I'm a just huge nerd at this point. I was nerding up. I was like, are you serious? Oh, man. Like in, like, like in the movies? Like, am I dreaming? Oh, man. And I was this old master come to you and be like, do you want to make a weapon? (laughs) Heck yeah. That's exactly what it was like. This is the life. Like I've lived. (laughs) (laughs) This is the coolest thing that could have happened. Yeah, right. And of course I say, yeah. And so we get started. And by the way, he lives in this awesome log cabin. Of course. And uh, it's two story. And, you know, he's got all the different animals, you know, the trophy books and all the different Mm -hmm. hunts he's been up on the wall and the stories. And what was awesome, Sean, was like with some of these bucks, the bow that he killed him with was hung on the antlers. And he made it himself? He made that bow himself. (laughs) Yeah. And like the arrow was, you know, right there on it. And I was like, that is awesome. And I want to have a story like this soon. And this is before we even started working. Like, this was just kind of us getting to know one another. He took me down into the basement, and, that you know, that's where the work is. That's where his shop is. And he had been making these bows for people, and he also shot competitions. We, we went, I went to Tanning Hills with him twice and shot a self-bow recurve competition. And a lot of people, you know, they brought their bears and their different recurve. And that's fine. But anyway, we got down in the basement, and he said, so... I have two options for you. I said, okay. He's like, you can make a hickory bow, or you can make a Osage uh, dock. It's it's known by both names, bow. Uh-huh. And, yeah. he, and he said, the difficulty is this. You could push a hickory out in a month or three months, this being your first time working with wood and learning the craft, or you could spend probably a year and go through many wood staves trying to find the ring in the Osage dock. I was like, well, I'll take the hickory. Of course. Yeah, that's what that's what a young person goes to immediately. What can I have right now? Yeah, exactly. And so that's natural. We go out to the the woodshed, man, and like it's all special. And I was like, dude, this is like fairy tale for me. (laughs) And we go out to the woodshed. You know, it's dehumidified. It's like the you know the perfect woodshed for this. Because I mean, this is his hobby. This is what he does when he's not working. This is what he's passionate about. Pick out your pick out your wood stave. I was like, you serious? I don't even know what to look for. And he said, I guess it's what speaks to you. And I was like, okay. And so I was looking through all the wood and I grabbed a piece. He said, okay. And so we go back and then he gives the option. And he said, now you got your wood. Do you want to go the long way or do you want to go the short way? And I was like, well, what do you mean? 
He said, well, we can do electric. You can take the bandsaw and go ahead and cut the shape out for the bow and immediately go with a draw knife and begin to rasp and begin to form it. Or you can just start with a draw knife and really shape the bow yourself. I'll take the second. Wow. And so, man, I, I spent, it, it was a four-month process, and it probably could have been done in about three months or, you know, three weeks or a month if I would have went the bandsaw away. But I really wanted to carve this thing out myself. You, you can't beat the taking the taking the long road and really i mean i i've worked with some bows uh with a draw knife and there's really nothing quite like it to just you're sitting there and you're kind of working with and you're kind of just pulling this bow out of nothing you know that's like, exactly pure, what it was man just pure nature just being just just formed right in front of you into into something you can use a tool mm-hmm. and it you know, connects you to like everybody who's ever made a bow ever in their lives you know throughout mm-hmm. the whole human race mm-hmm yeah, and I, I guess that was kind of the thing. I was like, man, I'm going to connect with the Native American, you know, or whatever. You know, I, I feel connected at this point, even though I'm taking the short way by taking the hickory. But I just, just because I'm an apprentice, I believe that is the way I should have took. And so anyway, man, I finally get the thing drawn out to a point to where we can finally begin the limbs, you know, begin to start the bending process. Yeah, and, yeah. And kind of, put, kinda, it, on the, put kinda, it on the tiller tree. Exactly. You put it on the tiller and see where the bends are and, you know, begin to draw and begin to really learn the piece of wood at this point because not like like you just mentioned this piece of wood is mine and i i've drawn on it myself nobody knows this tree better than i do at least this quarter of it mm-hmm. like this is my tree <laughs> and we're beginning to get the bend and you know you're drawing and then he started to ask the question and he was like do you want a strong bow or do you want a manageable bow i was like what do you mean and he was like now with these hickories they're infamous for being stout but they do develop string follow. And I was like, well, what's string follow? And he was like, well, over time, the hickory will lose its flex and it will all, it will, you know, naturally bend towards the way you string it. Right. And he said, so it, it would be proper to make it stronger than what you want. That way it'll eventually drop to what you need. I said, cool. And he's like, so what are you thinking? I was like, I wanted it 54 pounds. And he's wow. like, so what are you thinking as far as the drop? And I was like, well, I read it. It only takes 36 pounds to kill a deer. And I was like, I've heard it. Uh, you know down to 32 could kill one and so after string follow develops if i've read the book right my bow should be at 42 pounds because it's going to lose 12 pound draw over a period of time and it's going to be the perfect bow for you exactly and 42 pounds dude it was perfect and so after i got everything tillered and like fast forward and getting with the sandpaper not using anything electric physically that's an an achievement palm palm sanding palm sanding I, i wanted to do everything non-electric all natural as I could. Didn't want to go totally primitive. You know, didn't, you know, I was going to use sandpaper. Didn't want to use a rock. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, sanded it, got everything fine tuned, made the handle to fit my hand, put on the bow rest. I didn't carve it out. I just I I, I wanted to notch it on my finger, and my fingers are still scarred from where the fletchings fly. <laughs> yeah, they'll do that. And man, after I made the bow, I got finished just in time, and it was time for the Tanny Hill tournament. And I, dude, this is one of my favorite stories. And so we got up there, and it was like the twelfth shot. And so, like, I don't know if you've ever been to these kind of competitions, but they'll have no, like no, I never got the chance to. They'll they'll have these different shots set up like in wooded areas, and so like there was this doe, and it was off into um, it was almost like an elbow. It was like a Think of like a creek with a really slight wind in a pine thicket, and you oh, had, yeah. and that was your lane. And it was almost like you were going to have to have like this wanted experience where you could kind of sling the arrow and make it curve a little bit. Right. 
And so they have a judge at each shot. I hadn't been shooting good. Like Jerry, the guy that taught me how to make the bows, he was telling me the whole time because my score wasn't that good. Like, I, I, you know, I wasn't shooting bad. I was, I just wasn't getting near bullseye. I was getting like, I think bullseye was worth 10, then 8, then 6, then 4, and then 2. Like if you didn't, if you just hit the animal. Right. I was getting a lot of 6s and 4s, you know. Like I, I was hitting, I just wasn't on. It's tough, man. Yeah. It's tough. And on top of it, it was my first time. Pretty I was targets. nervous. Yeah. And so there was this thicket, and I just looked over there at the judge, and by this time I had red-headed man guilty. I, I got a little bit of an attitude. And I just walked up to the hole, and I was like, are you serious? And he said, what? I said, what is this? And he said, that's your shot. And I was like, okay. And I pulled back, and dude, if this arrow didn't bounce and just weave off of every little limb down that lane off that pine thicket and nail that doe right in the bullseye. Wow. And I just looked over at him, and it, like, just barely stuck. Like, the arrow, you know, it just, it was real flimsy. looked like it could fall out any second. But, dude, it had to hit, like, eight or nine trees, like, as it was going down that lane. Because and you it, shot that with your bow. Yeah, I shot that with my bow. And, like, the what happened wow. was, like, I usually notch it, like, off my thumb knuckle. But, like, right when I let go, I had slipped my thumb, and that slipped the arrow. And, like, that went, right when it left, I saw that it had a rock. You know the rock I'm talking about? Like, and this Where's is, like... Tail? Yeah, exactly. And then it's like you're you're shooting an arrow that the bow is too strong for. Yeah. It had that fishtail, and the back end caught one of them pines, and then it just started ricocheting. And I was like, oh. And it hit right in the bullseye. And I looked over at the judge, and I was like, does that count? And he's like, it's stuck. And I finished strong after that because after that, for whatever reason, I, I got some confidence about me, and I, I shot a lot better, especially well, for yeah. my age group. That would definitely boost my confidence <laughs> shooting through a through a bunch of brush and hitting it dead center, yeah, that would that would definitely boost my confidence a little bit. You shoot better when you're confident in yourself. It seems like you when you feel like you can do it. You mm -hmm. it's only when you start doubting yourself and your arm gets a little tired that's when shots start to go yeah. downhill in traditional archery. Mm -hmm. And and that was the tail of the tape because when you get to the end, like you could see it in everybody's score, even if they were shooting recurve, you could tell that there was a damper in the score that. The guys that started out really strong, they were really beginning to waver, and I think it was just the uh, the fatigue of it. Oh yeah. Because if you, you if you draw muscle. if you draw a bow correctly, it's it's very easy on the body, but it's very fatiguing too. But especially walking these courses. Yeah. Because you, you use your back. You want to start on your front knee, whatever you know, left or right, and really bend over on it, and you want to use your back to extend. That way you're not pulling just with your arms. That way you can save your strength. Even doing that, by the time you got to the end, I mean, it, you were very fatigued. Oh, yeah. I, I can only shoot for, you know, you shoot for a couple hours and you are wore out. I mean, you just got to kind of do it in chunks where you shoot a little while and then quit, shoot a little while longer and quit again. Build that muscle strength up and, mm -hmm. you know, I mostly, if I'm training with the bow, it's just so I can get a good shot on a deer, you know. It's right. really for those 3D, 3D, that's tough. Shoot all day, walk the field, all through the brush and all through the woods and stuff. That that adds a whole other element to yeah, just man. trying to make your, your, your good shot on a on a 3D target. Exactly. And on top of this, they had this fun one just set up, and it was like a little money thing. You throw in like a dollar in the pot. They had a moose set up. It was at least 100 yards, at least a football field, maybe just a touch more. Are you, you're familiar with uh, the flu flu arrows? Yeah, where he got a big old crazy 
bunch of them on there. It's like take the arrow, the, take they take the vein and they like twist it around the shaft, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. That's how they that's how they spreads it out and you can shoot up in the air. It's good for birds and things like that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because the way the the fletching is kind of wound around, it really slows the arrow down. And why they call it flu flu, I guess, is because that's really what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as it's going. And so they had that moose set off so bad, like everybody, like, and it was tight, dude, because it was like, I don't know, probably 25, 30 of us. It was like those scenes in those medieval movies where you would see the arrow barrage. Yeah. It was it was like that, and it was cool to be in the barrage, but you wouldn't get in the distance, dude. At best, we were getting three quarters of the way there, and, you know, that's it was a money hole, but. Yeah, I mean, it's who, a long, long shot. Who, who doesn't want to see their arrow in an arrow barrage? <laughs> I know, that's that's pretty cool. That's you don't get like you're saying. You don't get to see that very much. Mm-mm. You don't. And then, like the next summer, I met up with Jerry again, and we tackled the Osage Bodoc. And oh, so you went back and you you chased the ring, huh? I did, and that is exactly what I was going to tell you, dude. Because with the draw knife out there and finding the ring, yeah, I got down to the last ring, and it, and Jerry told me because I had done miss seven times, and. The last time I missed was extremely frustrating because yeah. I had messed up on my last draw. Like, I, I had almost followed that ring the whole wood stave. Dang. And so Dang. just just for those of y'all listening, if you're not familiar with this, so Osage is a layered piece of wood. And what we mean by the rings is there's the meat of the wood, and then there's the hard, then there's meat, then there's hard. And, like, the ring, what we're talking about is the hard, if you will. And so in bow making or any kind of craftsmanship with this type of wood, if you get out of that ring and you continue with your work, if it flexes or if there's any stress, that wood ring that is out will literally pop out and it will just snap. Yeah. It'll split. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. And if so one, one slip of a of a of a chisel or or your draw knife, you go a little too deep and you've ruined days worth of work. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was like. Matter of fact, dude, it took four days. And and because that that was me like going in for an hour and we would sit down and like kind of talk about it and I would go in and he could see I was getting frustrated he would send me home he said you just come back tomorrow you can't don't do this anymore today you know you don't you don't need to ruin this piece of wood because this is a this is a fine piece of wood that you picked out he's like I really want this to be your piece of wood I want it to be on your first time come back tomorrow come back fresh on that last draw man I I caught that last ring and we were both nervous about the strength. Because it was going to be a thin bow, and it wasn't what I was looking for because I was going to make a 75-pound draw bow, looking to lose. I was looking to lose eight pounds over time, so I wanted it to be in the 60s. And and by this time, like, I was a little bit older. I want to say, like, 14, 15. You know, I just, I'm a man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, a pretty heavy draw. That'd be a heavy draw for me. Yeah. And so we're not talking... Yeah, we're, yeah, exactly. We're not talking compound where you have a release. We're talking like when you have it full draw, you're still holding that weight. And, and if you're and if you're gonna hunt with it, and the deer starts to t- look your way, you have to freeze at full draw, holding that 60, 65, 75 pound mm-hmm. bow. It can it can really tear you up for mm-hmm. long. You spook a lot of deer not being able to hold back that far. Exactly, that's happened to me. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lesson learned, but I mean, I did I did get it down, and it actually dropped to, it, it got down, and it was at 57 last I checked, so it dropped. That's perfect. Yeah, and that's a good draw. 
I done it the same way. There was no electric involved. It was all done by hand after I found the ring, which was extremely stressful. And, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm about to ruin this piece of wood. And, like, this was my tree. We got it down. We got it everything right and put the stain and the finisher and, the, you know, to keep the humidity out. And it was the most beautiful bow that ever came out of that shop. And when we went to the competition the next, you know, after we got done that summer and it was time to go to the competition, Man, people were trying to buy that bow. Really? Yeah, and they was like, this is one of the most beautiful bows we've ever seen. And I was like, I'm not just saying that just because of my own. I mean, it's it's. I gotta, I'll gotta. i put some pictures up on the, uh, the Facebook page. To. you got to put some pictures up about yeah. that. I'll, oh, show, I'll show all that. And so, and so I mean, it's it's a beautiful bow. And, like, we had, I had this guy, like, I don't just do the bow. I made the string myself, and I made my arrows myself. Everything that was done mm-hmm. was my own. Uh, it was it. I, I, those were turkey feathers. We spun that wood beam out to the wood grain that we were going to need for that wood for that pound to shoot right. Wow! I mean, every every you, everything. You, so you was, determine your own spine there by yeah. Change it. You 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 cut them out of like you you made dowels out of uh, hardwood. Exactly. Yes. That's really cool. That's going the extra extra mile. Most people just order. You just ordered this the, the cedar shafts or whatever. Mm-hmm. What kind of wood did you use? He had some picked out, dude. I think it was some kind of oak that he was using. I, I didn't. I don't oh, remember well, now. It's been. But and we did. We went that route when we were out at Tanny Hills. Like the arrows that me and Sid. And by the way, Sid was the best shooter with that Osage. Really? It's actually a right-hander's bow. By the time Is I got it really. By the time I got done with it. Sid's a way better shot with that than I am. He can't outshoot me on my hickory, but he can mm-hmm. outshoot me with uh, that Osage. Man, Sid- what you need to do is bring him down here sometime, and we'll do uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll shoot sometime. That yeah. would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd love for you to see him. But like the funny story about that was, I was we were we were getting ready to go out for the the competition. It was early morning, and we were out in the open, and like I had a crowd of people around me like at this point because everybody had seen the bow they hadn't seen it strung up and like once again i'm not like just saying oh it's my bow you know oh look at me i'm i, I it's right. just the way that it was mm-hmm. did you put any kind of recurve in the bow there's there's a little bit it's real slight mm-hmm. and i mean it, it has developed a slight bit of string follow but i mean that's natural I was stringing it up, and I string up between my legs. Like, I'll, I'll put the bow and the bowstring between. And a guy just ran up to me, and he was just stopping me. He's like, whoa, don't do that. That's stupid. Chill out, bro. I was like, this, this is how I do it. Yeah, and he was, like, you, he was like, you don't know who made that bow. You don't know who made that string. If that string was to snap, it would rip that little artery right there in your thigh, and you would be dead. And I was like, I'll tell you a cool story. I know exactly who made this bow and exactly who made this string, and I trust that guy. And he's like, the only person I would trust is myself. And I was like, that's what I'm telling you. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I did, you told him? You told him that <laughs> this is my bow? Yeah. That I made this myself? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is crazy, man. I always string my bow like that, the step-through method or whatever they call it. Yeah, a lot uh, of people like to do it on the foot. But I, I'm not strong enough to do it like that. Like, you know, because you have to, you use the outside of your calf for the bottom limb, and then you'll use your forearm for the top limb, 
and then you'll you'll bring the strength. But I'm I'm not that stout. I have to go. I have to use my back. Yeah. And and bend 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 the bow over with my back and string up. Yeah. Some people say don't oh, don't do that. Don't do that. The bow can explode. And I guess a bow can explode. Any bow can explode at any time. Yeah, but, but you, um, you have to like if you haven't strung it, you have to stretch it. You have to make it remember how to do it. I've never had a problem doing it. You just got to be real careful when you're doing it, not to bend one one limb more than the other. You just kind of make that perfect even arch and slip the string up. Yeah. I wonder if we have anybody listening that that shoots recurve bows. That'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, I would love for them to shout out on that because like. I've always heard about those injuries, but I've never personally seen it or like heard anything like personally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you never really, you don't ever have the buddy who's you know gone blind because of it. But I've seen some stuff on the internet, some bow forums where guys will have splinters in their hands because a bow exploded. A lot of makers, you know, yeah. if you're constantly making bows and then shooting the bow in. Eventually, one's gonna break on you and kind of it could hurt you, but. It's a risk. I mean, yeah, it's part of the gamble. Because oh, yeah. I mean, you don't know, and like till the end, you can tiller it up, and you can do everything that you're doing. But until you put that string on it, and you pull it back to draw, you don't know what's gonna happen. That is the scariest part. Oh yeah. Especially with like an Osage. Let's just say you weren't 100 percent sure with that ring that you followed. You could have. And I think it just open right up on you, mm-hmm. and then just really hurt you, especially with a heavy poundage bow too. Uh, but I've, luckily, I've I've made one one serious bow. I made a hickory bow, but it's not a it's a hickory self bow. But it's a uh, it's actually a Ishi, the last Yahi bow. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ishi. I have. You have? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. So you know about these last of the Yahi Indians that wandered out of the forest in California. I think it was like 1901 or something like that. But that's mm-hmm. where we learned how to make the Osage bows and. Learn how to make the exactly uh, yeah expound on that napping. just a little bit more if you can for I mean for those not on you know that don't have any idea about issue yep, like if I say, you can nineteen oh one I think it was these uh, guys that worked at a butcher shop they their dogs started going crazy and they came outside and it was what they thought was a Mexican huddled up against the wall and uh, so they call the authorities the authorities come and pick him up try and talk to him in English Spanish and all these different Indian languages and he doesn't understand any of them and they're puzzled as what's wrong with this guy but it turns out he was uh the last member of the yahi tribe they're some family group of native americans connected to the yana the yana and the yahi they lived in these different gorges in california near osage county but anyway saxton pope the guys who wrote the kind of the the book the book on archery Mm-hmm. They learned what they know about archery from Ishi. They kind of like took his archery techniques and his kind of his philosophy on hunting and all this different stuff. And they kind of learned that made their own world out of it. Kind of they kind of made it American kind of archery. You know what I mean? They they went and they kind of learned different kinds of bows and how he, how the natives built them. Because at this time we had killed all the Native Americans. You right. know, we didn't really stop to research or take samples or get them to show us well how do you how did you pound this corn into making this how how did you twist this basket or this net yeah how did you You make that string i mean how did did, anything yeah they had kind of like been pushed off to the side so this was a chance for 
he actually went to live at the museum in uh, in California. I can't remember an museum in Osage County, and he ended up do, being almost like an exhibit there, where he would hang out and he would flint nap. He would um, take flint stone and chip out points and show people how he would make them and you know put arrows together, make bows, uh-huh. and uh, apparently he was like the ultimate craftsman. And this was a guy who had lived his whole life. He was the last wild Indian the last non-socialized and non, I don't know, domesticated person almost in America. That is so wild. And apparently he had a family. He, he, the whole reason he came wandering out of the jungle or out of the, uh, out of the desert was because his whole family had passed away. Um, they had been attacked by some white people. There Mm -hmm. was a, he was the last group. It was like five people. And they yeah. all died except for him. And so he was alone. He didn't have his tools to survive because when they were attacked, they took them. Didn't have furs. So the, basically, white people totally destroyed this guy's whole way of life and his family. Mm-hmm. But what's crazy is he never held it against them. He didn't ever harbor any kind of hate for white people or white culture or anything. He didn't blame them or because that would be all I could think about. I don't know about you. Yeah, uh, same way. Yeah, absolutely. I, w- I would I definitely mean, hold just, you know, yeah. But his way of thinking was this thing happened, these terrible things, and now this is what's happening. And it's like it it was inspiring to the people who were talking to him because they knew that they, they knew that he knew that, that white people were responsible for his, his family's death. But he just never brought it up, didn't worry about it. It was, he was, uh, he had this true native uh, philosophy that these white people just couldn't hardly understand. But he taught, he taught a lot of things. He taught a lot of native skills that he had learned living in the wild and having to survive off of nothing, off of just what you could make out of the, the wilderness. Yeah. And that, that, that's what it's all about, man, because, like, some of those, just going back, because, like, Jerry done it both ways. He's like, I'll show you how to do it domesticator, and I'll show, show you how to do it wild. And I have two arrows in my quiver with all those, along with all the arrows that you were talking about, you know, the kind that you can order and buy by the dozen. Yeah. And I had one that was extremely natural. Like it was, the broadhead was on the wood with sinew. Wow, yeah. And then the fletching was attached with sinew. Mm-hmm. And it's all natural. It is just the way it would have been then and i mean it was turkey feathers and i never got in the arrow making like i did not enjoy the process but like jerry was really trying to get me into it and he's like if you get good at this you could really you know sell them by the dozen and you could you know you could it could be you know 60 to 80 dollars a dozen man if you would get into oh, it. oh yeah and, and he was wanting to teach me you know how to make it out of crow feather you know turkey feather and then like really be able to dig into the books more and figure out what flew you know what flew best what flew the most silent well, How to make different tribes arrows would be cool, too. It, you can make a Sioux bow and arrow and make a, a mm, Creek bow and arrow. That'd be really cool. And, and that is where I want to get one day, man. I want to have I want to have a little shop to where I can really get into this. And I wanted to ask you about this. You know about Lars Anderson. Lars Anderson. Okay, great. I'm glad you don't. This will be great information for you. So this is, um, he's European. Oh, okay, hold on, hold on. Is Lars Anderson the crazy archery guy? Yeah, yeah, you know him. Oh, my God, yeah. 
the guy who who pissed off everybody in the archery community exactly. because he came out with all that stuff, and they're like, "We well, can't, you shouldn't shoot off that side of the bow, the, the uh-huh. right hand side." Or uh huh. And like oh, what man. it was was like he was going all the way back to all the old pictograms, you know, or calligraphy from Egyptians. And he was studying, like, the art from all of these ancient tribes and people that came, and he was seeing how they shot. He pretty much blew smoke, you know, up the fact of having, an, you know, a quiver. He was like, it's, right. it's completely ineffective. Uh, a good archer would have arrows in hand. And then he went so far to say, okay, you can hold them in the bow hand, but it was, it's better to hold it in the draw hand if you have it in, like, you would be like Wolverine. You would have arrows between your fingers. It, it seems unrealistic to me, but apparently it's true. Apparently, people were trained to be archers like that to the point where, you know, because there was always the stories where a, a good archer could get, like, seven arrows in the air before the first one hit the ground. Uh-huh. And you can't do that if you're reaching behind you and you're pulling one out and you put it on the bow. This is like a rapid-fire, this is like semi-automatic archery at some, exactly. at some point. Exactly. And so, like, some of the other things, and this kind of points to what you were just talking about, was each bow especially when you get to Seppo, and I'm glad you brought it up. And these were some of the projects that I was, I'm was i ready to get into, and I've read a whole lot more about, and I understand a whole lot better, is, let's say, the pony bow. Oh, well, yeah. What's, what's oh, na- yeah. What is natural about the pony bow? Well, it's incredibly short. It's a short bow, but the draw strength of the bow is incredibly stout. We're talking 120. But the point is not to be able to pull it the full draw. You want to have right. a, you want you just want to quarter draw it, and you also cut the arrows perfect. You need the wood grain right. You need the appropriate weight and the appropriate fletching, and the appropriate weight for you know your your tip. But right. if everything is, you'll be able to shoot at quarter draw off a horse and be able to tag anything. And, and it, it's not by your strength; it's by the bow strength. And you're talking about composite bows made with like uh, buffalo horn and things like that. Things that have the reinforcement. The horse bow, when you say horse bow, it makes me think of stuff like the Mongolians. They use, when I say composite, the Mongolians were making composite bows, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Were yeah. They, they, were using, they were using one element and then strapping it. Right, right. And how, how the insane draw draw weights of some of these horn bows, I mean, when they're unstrung, they look like, they look like almost a full circle. Yeah. And then when you string them, they're a perfect bow shape, but... The sinew, the hide glue, the horn. I've always wanted to make something like that. And yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't even think about that yet, Sean. And that's something I was, yeah. And I was looking at that with uh, one of the other archery things I was looking at the other day was that kind of thing. And I, I was like, I don't know how to work with those elements. I'm only good with wood at this point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, to get into like using like ram horn and how to, how to make it malleable to do what I want it to do. I know, it's crazy. Dude, and that, I mean that's the same way. And like, I mean, and let's we can hop off of the uh, the bows for a bit. Let's let's talk a little bit about the knives. Like, so have you got a little forge, or what are you doing to? Uh, or are you doing are you doing like railroad spikes, or how are you getting the metal I, for this? I, you know, I've done I've done the the what they call wild steel, which is where you just go out and you find yourself something that's rusty because you know it's got carbon in it, can be hardened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you cut your off, cut yourself a little big old piece off, 
Uh, I turned like an old smoker grill into my forge. I just had a, a leaf blower running up into it, and I just used hardwood charcoal. Yeah. And uh, that thing, you know, charcoal forging is is the toughest, most archaic kind. It's not like gas forging where you can pretty much set the temperature and know your steel is at that temperature. But right. with a charcoal forge, it, you, you just stick it down in there and bury it in your coals and hope for the best. Exactly. Um, I mean, it, 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 it don't get no better than that. Really, it doesn't. It's. I mean, I, you're getting back to, to uh, you're getting back to the way. Right. I mean, there's something totally primeval about taking iron and you heat it up, forge it out into something you want it to be, and mm-hmm. there's something really, really. I mean, the ancients thought it was magic. So, right. You know, just goes to show you how what they thought of it. That's awesome, man. All right, that's gonna do it for tonight for porch talk. I'm glad to have Sean in. So once again. Sean Subtle, Lawn Care. If you have any questions about that, he's got the number earlier in the show. And on top of that, with his music, Sean and Sid will be playing out at the Groovy Goat at the OWA. I think that was November 9th. And so they'll probably be there again. So if you find yourself in the Foley area, out at the OWA, hanging out, stop in at the Groovy Goat. Good music and uh, good food, good times, man. So check it out. All right, we're going to shut this thing down with some music. Thanks again, guys. This has been a Def Cab for Cutie episode. So the intro song and now the closing song is both by Def Cab for Cutie. They're a great band. And maybe you're only familiar with I Will Follow You Into the Dark. Um, it's a lot more than that. Ben Gibbard is a great songwriter. And he also has the Postal Service. So if you're just unfamiliar with Def Cab, Ben Gibbard, the Postal Service, check it out. It's good stuff. Anyway, this is Black Sun. Hey, thanks again, guys, for uh, hanging out. All right. There's whiskey in the water Death upon the vine There is fear in the eyes of your father And there is yours and there is mine There's a desert veiled in pavement There's a city of seven hills And all our debris flows to the ocean To meet again, and I hope it will How could something so fair be so cruel when this black sun revolved around you
There's an answer in the question And there is hope within despair And there is beauty in a failure And there are depths beyond compare There's a role of a lifetime And there's a song yet to be sung And there's a dumpster in the driveway Of all the plans that came undone How could Something so fair be so cruel when this black sun it revolved around you and how could Something so fair be so cruel when this black sun revolved around you. There is whiskey in the water And there is death upon the vine And there is grace within forgiveness But it's so hard for me to find And how could Something so fair be so cruel when this black sun revolved around you. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.